shooting out sparks over 38 states, the Canadian plains, and the tequila fields of Mexico. A program most deserving of a grand introduction. The Nocturnal Journal. The talk of the town. WGN Radio 720. With your guide, Dave Hoekstra. Daytime turns me off and I don't need maybe. Nine to five ain't taking me where I'm bound. When it's gone, I run out to see my baby. We get through Thanks for hanging around tonight. It's Dave Hoekstra with Nocturnal Journal. Um, 10.30 hour tonight, we're going to have Daryl Curley Jones, country music bus driver, who's retiring after 50 years of driving around country music stars without an accident. We're going to begin the segment with something we've been working on all summer um, about Margie's Candies and the Beatles. And it's, uh, did the Beatles really go to Margie's Candies in uh, the Logan Square neighborhood here in Chicago? It's a story I've written about. Took my nephew there a couple years ago at Christmas time, and we saw the Beatles shrine, and we were all so impressed. Chuck Gunderson is on the phone. Chuck wrote this uh, great set of coffee table books called Some Fun Tonight, the backstage story of how the Beatles rocked America, the historic tours of 1964 to 66. How you doing, Chuck? Hey, great, Dave. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Okay, you're there. Peter, Peter Poulos from Margie's. Thank you very much. Okay, I want uh, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And then we also have Stuart Wolf. Stuart, are you there? Hey, I'm here. And your father did publicity for this 1965 tour when they came to Chicago. Yes, that's correct. And they may or may not have gone to Margie's. <laughs> yes, that's correct as well. And I think we're going to have in a minute here. We're going to have John Grachowski, my longtime friend from the Chicago Sun Times. Are you there, John? Well, John will be with us in a minute, and uh, and uh, I want we'll start off with Chuck to state his case. So, Chuck, you and I have been in contact all summer about the, the research you've done. You kind of are kind of skeptical if they ever went to Margie. So, so talk about that. Yeah, so uh, I wrote this uh, two-volume set on the three tours the Beatles did from '64 to '66 in North America, and. Um, you know, at, just for the record, you know, in the book, it does state that the Beatles did go to Margie's Candies. And as a matter of fact, Chuck Gunderson himself went to Margie's Candy for the first time two weeks ago. And, Peter, that is great ice cream, especially the hot fudge. I loved it. Um, Thank you very much. It got me thinking, like, did they really go there? Because um, uh, it kind of stemmed from another research case I was doing on another Beatles sighting in Baltimore in 1964. And uh, so I started uh, kind of re-researching things that I had uh, done in the book. And with the Margie's visit, I was really looking for primary evidence, meaning newspaper articles from the day, pictures, any kind of evidence that the Beatles actually went there after the White Sox Park show. And the earliest reference I found was an August 1987 article in the Chicago Reader by a writer by the name of Adam Langer, who sat down with Margie herself before she passed away and uh, spoke about the Beatles' visit there. And that's what got me started. And uh, I'm, I'm like 50% there if they did or didn't. So let's talk. Peter. Yes. 
talk about uh, talk about the Beatles coming to Margie's and uh, especially the connection with the Ludwig drum, drum factory. Well, let me start this way. I was at the store working one night, and uh, the gentleman walked in wearing a beige leather hat and a vest. And uh, I looked at him and I said, Hi, Paul, how are you? He says, Hi. I said, Welcome back to Margie's. And he said to me, Thank you. Please don't announce who I am to your customers. I don't want to have a ride here. I says, okay, Mr. McCartney. I says, uh, what would you like? He says, well, let me tell you, I was at uh, Cubs Park, and uh, the audience was great. I paid $500 a seat to sit on my stage, and it was a wonderful performance. And I don't want any trouble with tearing my clothes off and so forth. So I said, what would you like me to get you? He says, a waffle cone, uh, butter pecan. So nope. I gave it to him with a spoon and a napkin. He tried to pay me. I put the money in a tip can. He says, I hope I see you again. He says, I hope so. And uh, he went out. I didn't announce to anybody. But I, people would be here to notice him. He walked out and uh, got in a uh, Bentley convertible. License plate was Paul uh, One. Paul oh. M, rather. And uh, drove away. Now, you're third, nice your third generation, Peter, right? Yes. Your third generation there. Um, what were you telling me about, and, and uh, John, John, have you joined us, John Krachowski? I am here, Okay, yeah. so talk about the relationship with the Ludwig Drum Factory and uh, Ringo wanting to play Ludwig drums. Well, what yeah. happened with the Ludwig Drum, because they were banking at the Main State Bank at that time, which was in the building where my mother had a candy store, and... Uh, uh, he came. He used to come over and have lunch with my mother, Mrs. Shirley Sark, over the bank, and uh, got an invite. My mother got an invite to go to uh, Belmont Harbor to uh, go on Ludwig's boat. The, the, it's called the Idler. I remember that. For, it was a big boat. Okay, so John, um, let's let's piece this together. So. She knows, Margie knows Ludwig. Right. I mean, I wrote about this for the Sun-Times, but I didn't know this angle. Margie knows Ludwig, and Ludwig does Ringo's drums. So there's there's a little bit of a connection there, right, John? Right, yeah. You know, the, the Beatles were, were huge fans of American rock and roll. You know, and, and you know, at, their, at their heart, the beginning, uh, uh, the very early Beatles, are, are a 1950s rock and roll band with some extra influences. You know, but, but they loved American rock and roll. Uh, they were obsessed with with, with American equipment. Uh, uh, Ringo wanted a set of American drums. So there's a fellow in London at that time named Ivor Arbiter, and who had exclusive uh, negotiated an exclusive deal to sell Ludwig drums in London. And Brian Epstein found him, 
they arranged uh, to buy Ringo's drum kit, also arranged for, uh, as part of the deal, that Ivor Arbiter was going to design the, uh, the, the logo for the drum head, and it was he who sketched the Beatles logo with the descending T that they still use as a trademark for that to this day. Now, that established a long-term relationship between Ludwig and Ringo, who bought several more drum kits uh, for, from Ludwig. Ludwig, in, in 1964, presented, uh, presented Ringo with a golden snare, which was believed missing for a while, but, but, but found. Uh, but, yeah, there's a long-term relationship between Ringo and Ludwig. So would it have made sense, then, that that could have been a Margie's connection? Margie's, if Margie's was connected with Ludwig, then yes, Ludwig certainly could have eased a, a connection with the Beatles. And, and Dave, this is Stuart. Yeah, certainly Stuart. a couple of things. And, you know, when, we, when you told me about this topic and coming on your show, yeah, I started to do some research myself. And t- some more things that John just mentioned, um, when Ringo was over getting his first equipment from the Ludwig rep, the rep was starting to take the Ludwig um, label off the, off the drumsticks. And, and Ringo's like, no, 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 keep it on there. I, I, I want things that are American. So I want to add that point to, to what John just said. And then also researching where they were located. The original office was at 1728 Damon. And so again, very close to where Margie's is. So you know, so so there's there's the personal connection, but also the geographic connection as well. Um, and then also just to the actual night of the concert, from what I know of my father. And again, I was there. I was very young, and I met the Beatles, and and you know, I remember that vaguely, and remember the concert in in, in certain ways as well. But um, but I've also, as Dave knows. Um, I've spent uh, a large part of my life working, promoting uh, movies and working with a lot of celebrities from about the um, late 80s through, through recent times. And I will tell you that obviously from, from if you take today's filter on what Chuck is questioning, it makes perfect sense to say there's no way the Beatles could have been at Margie's. But on the other hand, knowing what it was like to work with celebrities even in the, in the late 80s, there wasn't that same kind of, of, of attention and momentum building in terms of people running out to get photographs Obviously, there are no cell phones to go ahead and, and grab a quick photo that way. And so it's, it's quite conceivable, in, from my experience and from what I know of that time of the 60s, that, that the Beatles, you know, they would have, I know how they left the, the Akunski Park. I know that they, were, they got into their car. And, if they, and, again, these guys were in their early 20s, and so it makes perfect sense. They'd want to go to some place they could hang out that would be, again, American, like a Margie's Candies, which, again, they could have known about because of Ludwig. And, and, and so, it's, so from, a, from, a, from a kind of a common sense logic standpoint, it, it does make sense to me. Talk about tell the listeners, uh, and it's in it's in Chuck's book where he uh, this and Chuck. In a minute, we want to get the website where people can get this book. But talk about your dad's role. I mean, how he brought uh, your dad brought the Beatles to the White Sox owners. Yes, um, my my dad was 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 uh, working as a as a PR guy in Chicago. Had been working for many years, and one of his clients was uh, was a concert promoter named Frank Freed, and he also did work with the White Sox. And he put them together when the Beatles were looking for places to put on um, their performance. And he actually worked with them on two of the three times that they were were here. I don't. I think he was. They were, they were at the amphitheater, and I think he worked with them one time when they were at the amphitheater, uh, as well as at Comiskey Park. Um, and so um, and so again, he was. 
as as the PR guy, and and my father was also a very easygoing kind of a personality. Um, the Beatles kind of gravitated towards him because he wasn't he wasn't looking for anything from them. They were comfortable around him. Um, he was very comfortable with them. And so uh, so uh, they, you know, when they came back into the press conference um, the, the following year, I think it was the following year. You know, they had him. They requested to make sure he was going to be there for that. Um, but he really of, of he's worked with all kinds of people throughout the years, and the Beatles were always, uh, in his mind, one of his favorite groups of people to work with because they were so down to earth, they were so grounded at the time, and, and they just seemed to be really enjoying these new experiences they were having and, 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 um, and, and not letting it go to their heads. So he really, again, enjoyed them. Um, what, uh, when I remember talking uh, when we did the story years ago, did your dad guard, like stand at the front door of Margie's? Um, was there a, any type of security setup? Peter, do you remember anything like that? That, that I, I wish I did, but honestly, I don't. Um, he was, what he was involved with was, was making sure that they were going to be um, uh, safe and protected um, at the performance at Comiskey Park. And so, and this, this story is in your article, but they, um, he had worked, they had actually, there had been a, a big circus at Comiskey Park, and they had what was called an elephant gate that was like a gate oh, that, yeah. um, that they had to dig an extra, like, deeper um, hole into, and that was the original way they were going to try to get the Beatles out in case the fans ran on the field, but that became less viable. I don't remember exactly why. So instead what they did was, that since the stage was at second base and it was a raised stage, they had hidden two golf carts underneath the stage, and so that was the way the Beatles actually ended up leaving the concert, but it was there, again, as an emergency as well if, if they had to leave suddenly versus, um, uh, again, it, it, when, when they concluded. Um, and so my father was part of that. And he, you know, he did leave with them. But again, the first, he never talked about Margie's himself, but it wouldn't have been something he would have raised, uh, you know, in, in any context that, I, that I'm aware of. But, but when, when I know when you talked to him about it, it again, he, he, it seemed to make sense to him. So, so, you know, so as far as I know, he would, he would have told you at that interview if he felt there was something erroneous. He was that kind of person. Paul, are you there, Paul? Yeah. Do you remember? Now, you told me the other day you started working at Margie's in 1954 when, what, you were 17? With my dad died. Yeah, right. Do you remember? What do you remember, if anything, about that night when the Beatles showed up? Was there a lot of commotion? Uh, I was a radio podiatrist. You were what? And I was a foot doctor. You were and at? I was at County oh. Hospital. My mother called me up and said, you better hurry up and come here. The store is going crazy. The Beatles are here. Somebody who lets you Oh, so your mother, yeah, you're, so your mother called you up and told you to get on the site. Yes. Okay. So I ran there with this uh, buddy of mine, Dr. Stoletta, and uh, drove the park in the middle of the street, and the police came, and uh, there was a lot of police around. There were police around? Yes. There were police around. Hmm. Yes. Stuart, how long and, uh, did you... I came in the door. I heard all the noise and everything like that. I found my mother. She was at the Beatles Theater. Stuart. And, uh, Stuart and John. And then we'll yeah. get back to Chuck. How okay. long do you think it would... And then back in the day, how long do you think it would have taken them uh, to get from Comiskey Park up to... Uh, well, I don't know if you call it Bucktown or Logan Square, up to where Margie's is. Oh my goodness! You know, you're, you're talking uh, 1965, and it's, it's fairly late at night because they played an eight o'clock concert, 
so I wouldn't think it would have taken much more than half an hour at that, at that time. But yeah, that's my best guess. Would have been twenty-five to thirty minutes. So, did yeah. your dad ever talk about an Elvis-type exit where they were like uh, just ready to rev up and go? You know what I mean? I, I do know that. I mean, my memory from what the stories I heard was that they did have to leave the the Comiskey Park very quickly because they were they they from previous concerts they'd had they didn't want the crowd to kind of you know lock them in. So um, so there was a lot of, you know, a lot of what my father had to work on the planning of was how could they get them out quickly. So, again, those golf carts and then yeah, right. going through the back part of, you know, going through the outfield was a quick way to get away from where all the fans were, obviously, you know, in the stands between third base, around a home, and around a first base. So, so yes, I think, I think that there was, a, there was a, a, you know, from my understanding, there was a great focus on expediting them out of there um, once the concert was over. Uh, yeah, Dave, Dave, if I may, you know, there, there was some difficult around that tour stop because the Beatles didn't get into Chicago until uh, 3 a.m. from Houston and they landed at the wrong airport. You know, they, uh, uh, the crowd was gathering at O'Hare. There were security concerns and so they were told, no, you cannot fly into O'Hare. They wound up landing at Midway and had to bus up to their hotel, which was the O'Hare Sahara. Yeah, Chuck has great stuff about the mobster connection there. <laughs> <laughs> And the, the O'Hare Sahara had been indiscreet enough to announce that the Beatles were there, so the crowds were all around. They were screaming. Nobody, nobody got any sleep all night. They played shows at Chicago at 3 a.m. and 8 p.m. They would not have been any in any hurry to get back to the hotel before they left uh, for for Minneapolis the next day. Okay. Can you all hang on a little bit? We're going to obviously you heard that. We're going to take a break for the news, and then uh, I want to continue, and then I want to talk about some of your own projects, and we can plug the book. So, can you all guys all hang on? Okay, all right, don't go away on, on Beatles and Margie's on WGN's Nocturnal Journal. She said, you don't understand what I said. I said, no, 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 you're wrong when I was a boy. Everything was right. Everything was right. I said. There we go. Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal on WGN. And um, on the phone, we have author Chuck Gunderson, author of this fine book, Some Fun Tonight, the backstage story of how the Beatles rocked America, the historic tours of 1964 through 1966. Peter Poulos, the son of Margie at Margie's Candies up there at Milwaukee and Western, opened in 1921 as First Securities Candies. Stuart Wolf whose father, Sherman, did the publicity for the 1965 tour that brought the Beatles to Chicago and maybe Margie's. And John Grachowski, my dear friend from the Chicago Sun-Times and a uh, longtime Beatles writer. How you doing, John? Real good. It would, uh, it would break my heart if this story were... <laughs> if this story wasn't true, I mean, it's it's we're living in tough times right now. So to say that the Beatles never really went to Margie's, I mean, people have never been there. There's a mar there's a shrine for the Beatles. Uh, there's Beatles memorabilia. Uh, John, you bring up a point um, that Apple kind of keeps an eye on some of this stuff. Apple keeps an eye on everything. They are very vigilant about protecting Beatles copy marks and trade copyrights and trademarks the way they're publicized. 
uh, even uh, to the extent that uh, the, the event formerly known as Beetlefest uh, had to change its name to the Fest for Beetle Fans so as not to appear that it was Beetle-sponsored. Uh, they've never objected to the Margie story. Margie has had this memorabilia display and, and trading on it for a long time. You know, me that doesn't prove that that that, that uh, it happened. You know, maybe it's off their radar, but the, their radar really doesn't miss very much. I think Chuck, uh, you know, Chuck and I we've been back and forth all summer on this. I think you have one really good point here, and then the panel can address this. Um, no accounts from the group's inner circle, some of which wrote diaries of the happenings on the tour. I think that's, yeah, that somebody would have mentioned this, don't you think? Chuck, can you talk about that? Yeah, so for my book, I did about eight years of research on every North American city they hit over that three-year period. And it's interesting that in the research that in many of the cities, there's primary newspaper accounts of Beatle imposters that were spotted and kids trying to make uh, girls think that they were the Beatles and things like that. Even some hotel managers were fooled by them. And I've been listening to everybody, and I highly respect everybody, and, uh, you know, especially uh, Mr. Wolf, whose dad, you know, brought the Beatles to Chicago. And, you know, what a great guy. Uh, but as I, you know, I look at the as I look at the evidence, um, I'm just, you know, first of all, it says they went in with five girls. You know, there's where are the five girls? There's there's no there's no uh, eyewitness accounts of people that were walking around. I figured the Beatles, if they would have arrived, it would have been about 11 p.m. on their way back to the Sahara O'Hare because they played on the south side, stayed on the north side. So it's it's obvious they could have stopped there easily. Um, no photographers. I mean, we're talking about 1965. This is the absolute height of Beatlemania. A week earlier, it sold out Shea Stadium, 55,000 people. There were always fans out by the getaway cars. They had to do all kind of elaborate ruses to get out of stadiums. Sometimes they were held prisoner in the stadium until they could figure out a way to get them out. There were people that followed them on the freeways uh, from, you know, hotels to venues. Um, it, it, and there's just no, nothing, there's not one other shred of evidence that points to anything that they were there. I mean, um, the only thing I find, the first evidence I find is an article written in the Chicago Readers 22 years after the events. You know, if the Beatles were famous and Margie was talking to them, could she not have them sign a menu, uh, give them autographs, hey, I have my brownie camera, I want to take a picture, anything, photographers, journalists, fans, nothing. Um, that, that's where I'm kind of questioning the whole thing. Believe me, I love Chicago. It's one of my favorite <laughs> cities on earth. I want it to be true. <laughs> um, Peter. Until I find that real concrete evidence of maybe one of those five girls is still around or some photographer snapped a photo of a, a, you know, a fan that followed him, anything. Maybe one of those I've girls are on Facebook and no, no one's ever gotten back to me. Peter, are you there? I'm here. What do you think of that? He says they weren't there. Uh, he says I the beat. I saw them. I can't say I didn't see them. I saw them. You did see them? Yes. When you got back from the podiatrist? No, when I was coming uh, out earlier. Yeah, and then you saw them. You said they were there. Yes. John? Um, I, I might have two um, people who worked for Margie's at that time, the Jenna Coppola's boys, Tony and Gus. 
But they're in Greece right now. They're in Greece. And they won't, uh, won't be able to get back to, to talk to them uh, until uh, yeah, that's, after Labor Day. That's fine. John? John? Yeah. Were, were there autographed drumsticks? Were there autographed drumsticks? Yeah. Um, you know, they're... they're, they're Go ahead. Not not routinely, but did people have 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 drumsticks autographed? Yeah, sure. Yeah, they had, they had everything autographed. And I thought I thought that that there was at one time on display at Margie's at least something I saw online that said that there were autographed Beatles drumsticks at Margie's. Was, now again, Chuck, I can answer that question. I was there a week ago. Yeah, and uh, they are. Uh, they are late model Ringo Starr autographs from when he's touring solo now. So we're talking. Okay, so they're not the same. Not original. original. Yeah, they're machine, they're machine printed. I look okay. at the little memorabilia case. Oh. There's 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 nothing in it that points to them being there, but there is a photo of them when they appeared at the Bards Room at White Sox Park when they did the press conference in Chicago. Okay, and Chuck, I, I, I think I mean you make, in my, from my perspective, you do make good arguments about why this may not have happened. But I still, I mean, even though it was Beatlemania, in my mind, I still think there's a way that they could have, if they did expedite out of the ballpark, you know, very quickly, and by being out of the back of the ballpark where maybe fans weren't, you know, suspecting they'd come out, they possibly could have gotten into a car and then been kind of, uh, you know, anonymously going down the highway, uh, like you said, on the way to O'Hare and 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 knew about um, Margie's. I don't know, obviously, but that's just a, a guess, and I. I wanted to add one thing, which I'd mentioned to Dave before. Uh, this was the first concert I believe I've ever was at, and I, again, I was very young. And one of the things I was asked to do is, since there were two concerts, the, the afternoon one and the evening one, um, my dad had asked my mom to ask me to bring some of my comic books to these musicians. I didn't know a lot about who the Beatles were. I knew they were famous, but I didn't, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't know them as, you know, as a, as a six-year-old. And so I remember, you know, I, and I had Superman comics and I had Archie comics. I remember, like, very reluctantly bringing these to these guys I didn't know and then meeting them in this in this room that wasn't the bars room it was some other kind of lounge that they were hanging out in and they were really hungry to get these these comic books and my dad later told me they they had just kind of stumbled across comic books I believe on this part of this American tour and they were very you know very curious to see them and, and wanted to hang you know have that as something to hang out with you know in between shows and as the one thing I thought about is we're all talking is certainly even though they they raced out after the concert how could they find five you know women to be with well, they might have find, found those women women sometime between the first concert and the second concert, and and, and arranged for them to, to be in those the cars that got them out of the out of the ballpark and to Margie's. But for what that's worth, they but had just, the uh, just a supposition, obviously, just a guess. Yeah, they had the uh, Chuck. You're gonna have to rewrite the book if we find this all <laughs> false. I mean, you. Yeah, I might have. They to, said. I mean, I you. Love, I love Margie's ice cream. I, I love the details. I mean, and I think Margie told me this when I interviewed her. They had the Atomic Buster, right? In the yeah, best, yeah. Still, still on the menu. Still on the menu, right, Peter? Yeah. And, and the question I have for Chuck is, when you did your research, Chuck, you know, looking at other places around the country, were there other instances? You said there were, there were people that, that posed as the Beatles, but were there other cases of other kinds of locations, whether it was a restaurant or something else, that claimed to have a Beatles visitation that you could prove didn't happen? Or was Margie's kind of unique in terms of your research that way? Maybe fake Beatles came to Margie's. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there was a, in California when they played the Hollywood Bowl on August 23rd, 64, there's an account of them going to Bob's Big Boy, which is a hamburger chain. I think in, in, over in there, in your area, it was called Roy Rogers. And Bob's 
big boy in Glendale still has a booth called the Beatles booth, just like Margie's does. And there's absolutely no, not a shred of evidence that they are ever at Bob's big boy. And, and it could have been there's another incident or in Baltimore yeah. when they played there September 13th, 1964, where George Harrison, for some reason, was spirited away from the group and had to stay at another hotel because he was sick. And on the way to meet the group to fly out the next day to Pittsburgh, um, they, uh, George wanted to stop and visit a Catholic girls' school called Mercy High School and also also Lake Walk Elementary School. And there's actually primary press of the day, the next day, stating that Beetle George visited this Mercy High School. And there's there's a dialogue or an interview with a Catholic nun. I mean, how could you <laughs> okay. Catholic nuns not lying to you? And this is this is like a, a primary example of these imposters that would go around and you know make people think that they're the Beatles because they were the hottest thing on the planet. Okay, we got to take a break. Um, we got to take a break. Um, and I want to come back. I, I want to talk about how people can find the book. And John, I want to ask you about why did the Chicago newspapers? Why weren't they there? So don't go away on Nocturnal Journal. Okie dokie. I got so many more questions. Let's see if we can do in the next five or six minutes. I might keep you a little bit later, but but I, I teased at the at the break there. I think another good point that Chuck has is where uh, there were four or five newspapers. John, and, I mean, there was Cup. There was Bill Zwecker was probably working for Lerner. I mean, what? Was, <laughs> where was everybody? How come people weren't covering this? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, and for them for them to have gotten to Margie's uh, without any publicity, uh, without any photographs, without any news reports, you have to assume that they slipped the press in general. And uh, it would have been very difficult. I'm not going to say impossible, but, yeah, it would have been really difficult. There were reporters embedded with the Beatles for the tour, not only from Chicago but from other markets. I mean, Larry Kane from Philadelphia was on the entire tour. Um, Larry Kane did the introduction for the book. For, everybody would have looking, been looking for a new angle, and certainly they, they would have had to slip the entire press corps in order to make this happen. Stuart, would your dad had something to do with that? Would he have steered the, the press away? I mean, there, there would have been he would have there would have been a, a structured time for the press to interact with the Beatles, and I do know again based on the conversation he had with you and, and many other conversations he talked about it in general in terms of that night that again there was this as I said before there was a real big emphasis because of something I think that John said earlier that in other or maybe it was Chuck but one of you said that there were a lot of instances where they were trapped in the stadiums that they were performing at so they didn't want to have that happen at Comiskey Park and so they had taken all these extra measures to make sure again they could expedite them out of there to avoid that problem. And again, as a byproduct of doing that, um, I, I think from that sense, it's very plausible that they could have gotten, they could have stopped in any number of places without being seen. And I just want to add one more thing I was thinking during the commercial break. You know, you talk, uh, Chuck told those great stories about all these funny instances of, of the fake Beatle showing up, you know, with, with the nun and, 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 and the like. But, but I've worked with, with big celebrities over the years. I mean, I don't, I'm, don't, I, I'm not a name dropper, but, but the 
biggest names. I mean, biggest names, biggest actors. I, and, and I certainly, when they were in Chicago, on occasion, we were overwhelmed with press. And like you said before, Dave, there were times where we would go to a restaurant, and as soon as we walked in, you know, the, 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 the valet would, would call his friends, and the next thing we knew, there'd be 100 people at the restaurant. But there are other times where these, these same stars, I could get them into, to, typically not a restaurant, but into, like, there's a place on the north side called Goodies. And I had several celebrities that I told about, told Goodies about to them. Oh, and they the, the, toy, to the gift shop, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. There's all kinds of, like, you know, retro, right. you know, uh, chassis and things like that. And a lot of times when I would take a celebrity there, the Goodies would take a photo to, the, you know, to Chuck's point about there being some kind of authentication. But this was, again, when it was in the 90s and the 2000s, when, again, that maybe was more common. I don't know. But all I'm saying is I have to imagine that during the Beatles' time in the United States, there had to be at least several instances where they had some privacy, if you will, in a public place. And we don't know of those things because they, were, they became private, whereas the ones that you hear about were the ones, like you said, where there were the horde of press that were covering them, but they couldn't have, I don't think they were under a microscope uh, 24 hours a day. Uh, John, maybe you can refute that, or maybe Chuck, you could refute that, but, but as I said, from my perspective, there had to be some window of time where they could probably have some level of, of, of being anonymous. Um, <laughs> And Peter again was there, you know, to witness at at, at at Margie's. So you've got that as well. So I'm going to keep you guys for a little bit. Um, is that okay, Ro? I'm going to keep them for after the news because I, I, I want to talk about the book, and then I want to talk. I got one more segment I want to talk about just Chicago's role and Chicago, the role of Chicago radio uh, in the Beatles' development. So uh, can you hang on a little bit longer? Sure. Okay, so Uh don't go away. We'll be back a little bit more of this on Nocturnal Journal on WGN. Okie dokie. Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal on WGN. And we're talking about if the Beatles ever actually went to Margie's Candies up there in Bucktown. Thousands and thousands of people visit Margie's every year, Chuck, to, to to see the Beatles shrine. Uh, some fun tonight, the backstage story of how the Beatles rocked America, the historic tours of 1964 to 66. I'm looking at volume two, which covers 65 to 66. Chuck, how can people find this book? Oh, you can find it at somefuntonight.com or your usual places like Amazon or other booksellers. And when you said you spent eight years researching all this? Yeah, I did because uh, there was, uh, you know, the, the information was so scant, you really had to dig. Um, you know, we look at the concert business now, it's so grown up, it's a multi-billion dollar industry, but we have to think back in the, you know, when the Beatles toured, it was so archaic. I mean, you know, security was archaic, sound systems were archaic, you know, they were kind of making the blueprint for the concert business. As a matter of fact, when they played White Sox Park, that was the actual first time that they uh, Kaminsky Park had even had a rock concert there. So all of this was so new, so fresh, and uh, this is kind of some of the conundrums we have along the way. When you went, when you visited Margie's the first time, when was that? Just a few weeks ago, right? Yeah, I went. I've been always wanting to go. I lived in Chicago for a couple of years, but I never went, and I really enjoyed it. I had a great uh, hot fudge Sunday. But, you know, one thing I did see which kind of gave me some encouragement is that uh, in the middle of Margie's, there's kind of like a wall that has all the candy display, and behind that wall are, is the Beatles booth, so-called. Right. And when you walk on the street in front of Margie's, that candy counter obscures that booth so anybody walking in the front couldn't see anything going on behind but if you walked along the side street you could see some uh, people sitting there so 
that gave me a little of encouragement, but I, I'm just still not convinced <laughs> that they were at Margie. You stayed some good cases. Um, I was going to say that was my question. If you, when your visit made anything change your mind, you know, but so so that. But yeah, I mean, everything's replica. I remember that. I haven't been there in a couple of years since we took my nephew. But I mean, there's no real original material from their visit, right? It's all replica stuff. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah, then on the website they say in a few in, a, in many years this is a direct quote many years later Mick Jagger stopped by and again there's no no uh, evidence of that no photos no pictures and this is years later that's now. where I get skeptical and then other yeah. sites it says the entire Rolling Stones were there yeah and again no evidence no pictures no recollections nothing yeah that's where I, I get skeptical what do you guys think as we wrap this up Stewart and uh, John. I still hold on to the hope that it's the true story because, as I said before, unless Chuck, unless you were able, and again, like you said, it was kind of a hard time to research that it's that there, unless you knew every minute of every day of their tour, you know, there is certainly room for them to do things that went um, undocumented and unnoticed, you know, or, 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 or mostly unnoticed. And as I said, in my experience with, with celebrities, and even in more recent times, there are places I've been with high profile celebrities where they might get recognized once they showed up, but even sometimes there were ways to keep um, keep the celebrity um, uh, incognito and 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 being very much in public but not noticed. So so in today's world, even with cell phones and, and everything else, it still happens not as much. But uh, as I said, I think it would have been easier even in the midst of, of Beatlemania for that to possibly happen. And, and I want to hold on to that that hope of that truth. On the other hand, based on Chuck's comment, or you know, or who knows, maybe there's a British um, you know imp- um, imposter band that, that shows up every ten or fifteen years as the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or or the remote, you know somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> No. Yeah, it's a, you know, I, I hold again hold out hope that I would like this story to be real. I hold out uh, hold out hope that they were somehow able to slip the press and get in unnoticed and, and all that. But I'd be much happier if there were photographs of the Beatles with Margie or in the shop or uh, something. There, there, there's something some kind of of evidence uh, from the day. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean it, 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 we all we all hope for that. But it, but it, but it, but again, it, we're looking at it, I think looking at it from from a Contemporary filter, um, you know, John. I, you know, and so as I said, I think it, 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 there's plenty of room for it to, to have happened. On uh, the other hand, as John and Dave knows, and maybe you know too, Chuck or Peter, as, as they said at City News, if your mother tells you you love, she loves you, get two sources, right? So, so uh, that comes from, from a, a deep Chicago journalistic tradition, of right? That, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I probably failed to do that one. I, I spent a lot of time with Margie. I talked to people around the store, but I mean, I didn't go out. I didn't try to find these five girls, you know, that. that that you talk about Chuck. I mean, yeah, it's it's it's, it's kind of kind of a, an empty spot there, I guess, right? Yeah, there's only one possible source, and I actually had a uh, researcher do a lot of digging in the in the newspaper stacks and in the uh, libraries of all the Chicago publications of the time. There's one possibility. There was, a, of course, uh, it helped me with the last name, but his name was Irv Cup's column. Yeah, Irv Cup's column. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. So he did a column, and uh, so naturally he would have probably, you know, he was everything kind of Chicago going on at the time, you know. And uh, so he researched the columns uh, about a week uh, prior to the Beatles playing the concert to about three days afterwards, and there was no, no mention of it. And then he went on vacation for a couple weeks, and um, there was no mention when he came back uh, in any of the columns. That was our only possibility. And this was from a 
probably the most researched historian in Beatle history. His name's Mark Lewis, and he's uh, oh, yeah. the most acclaimed Beatles author. Well, and, you know, and we we've been going back and forth on it ourselves, and he also has his difficulties with the visit because his next book, the Tune In Volume Two, is coming out, which will cover that period of time. But he's he's not convinced. You know that that neighborhood was more of a no man's land then than it is now. I mean, yeah, it, you know, yeah, it, was, it, was, it yeah. really was. Yeah, it's commercial commercial kind of district. It's, you know, I did think if it was in a residential area, you know, the limousines and all that commotion, people would come out. But again, it was it was kind of an outlying, you know, commercial area. Yeah, yeah and a little bit rougher than it is today. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Real quick, I want to uh, have you guys plug your other projects. John, people can find you in the Sun-Times, Baseball by Numbers column. Yeah, I do uh, uh, Baseball by the Numbers column in the Sun-Times on Tuesdays. Uh, I, I freelance ar- around the country. I, I'm, I'm keeping busy as a freelancer here these days. Uh, I'm retired as a regular staffer as the Sun-Times. But, uh, a lot of, you know, people who are interested in some of the entertainment interviews I did, especially Beatle-related, uh, Ronnie Spector, Denny Lane, Billy J. Kramer, can find those at a blog called uh, uh, JG's Overflow. So, so Google JG's Overflow, and you'll find. Oh, that's uh, great. That's good. That's good. Are you can do an op-ed piece on the players' weekend uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> Horrible. <laughs> we talked about that earlier tonight. Yeah. And uh, Stuart, talk real quick about your movie Game Day. Sure. I, so I've transitioned from from uh, movie marketing and PR to producing film and television, and I have a movie that I produced that was shot in Chicago and very uh, with a great uh, a great Chicago uh, film crew. Um, the movie is called Game Day. It's coming out October fourth in in cedar cities around the country, including Chicago. Um, it stars uh, Elizabeth Aldifer, a very talented actress, and Lil Romeo, Romeo Miller, who's Master P's son, who some of your audience may know, and their music's in the movie, and it's a story of a, um, of a very self-centered woman who's got to learn to be a team player and make her company's all-male basketball team to save her job. Um, our website is gamedaymovie.com, and you can get more information there about the movie, but um, just was completely thrilled to be able to make uh, such a great movie in, in Chicago with such a great crew and, and great cast, and um, I look forward to, to make, producing other movies and TV shows that I have in motion right now. Well, thanks, you guys, for staying up late with us. Uh, let's do this again if we get any breaking news, if somebody emerges that was the there. One of the girls yeah, listen to the show. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, well, one, one call decides to One call. Well, it'll be great, Chuck, all right? <laughs> Thanks so much. I really okay. hope I don't get any death threats. No, no. I, the, and I really want to recommend the... I love the, Margie's. I love Margie's. I love Chicago. And the Beatles visited there three times. You, were, you got them three times, so three years in a row. It's a very handsome <laughs> book. I highly recommend it. So. Cool. Thank you, guys. Thanks a lot. We're right, back with uh, Curly Jones after this on WGN.